The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. I'm sitting on a bin and the laptop and Michael are literally resting on my sweaty little lap. Four. And of course, there should always be a golden thread from the grassroots upwards to the MPs. And I think that is certainly broken over not just recent years, but certainly over some time. I don't think Rishi Sunak will be getting a standing ovation unless they've got to go in there with the cattle prods. The prospect of Keir Starmer coming into number 10. You know, I don't want that. I want a Conservative victory. One. We have lift and welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Greetings from the Conservative Party conference in Manchester, capital of the North. Likely to be the last big annual gathering of the party faithful before a general election, this 2023 Tory conference has attracted a lot of attention. That's ironic, because with Rail Union as left timing the latest train strikes on Sunday when the conference began, and Wednesday when the conference ended, attendance has actually been quite low. But there was no shortage of people at the controversial fringe meeting styled the Growth Rally, staged by Liz Truss, where she was joined by three former cabinet ministers. Hundreds queue for trust, said the Telegraph headline, as a rejuvenated former prime minister rallied an excited crowd of Tory activists. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt didn't concur, of course, by cutting taxes, giving a speech that was widely seen as flat. This week's cancellation of the HS2 rail link between Birmingham and Manchester is also controversial, not least as it was announced at a conference in Manchester. <laughs> but Prime Minister Sunak is betting that voters in the north will ultimately prefer his plans for better east-west rail links instead and other transport initiatives. Certainly with the government's finances under pressure, the curtailing of this hideously expensive high-speed rail project has been on the cards for a while. It's been an interesting conference, Alison, more upbeat than I expected, with lots of young people running around too. And while the polls are still pretty gloomy, there are plenty of Tories here in Manchester who genuinely believe their party can win. What say you, co-pilot? <laughs> How do you do hollow laughter, Liam? <laughs> I think you just did. <laughs> They're heading for an epic defeat. I've told you this before. Pay attention to your co-pilot. So I've got a piece in the paper, which when listeners are listening to it, it will be, a piece will have come out yesterday. So we'll put that in the show notes. And it's basically me coming out saying, I'm a Conservative who is not going to vote Conservative. I can't vote Conservative, Liam, because I don't think that the government is a Conservative government. I think what we have got is a social democratic, high-taxing, high-spending party, which if it was high spending and high taxing and was delivering fantastic first world public services, maybe we'd give them the benefit of the doubt. But most of the public services, particularly the health service, are absolutely appalling. Now, you used that reflex term in your introduction, which is the party faithful. What I'm arguing is the party faithful are now the party unfaithful, massively disappointed, disillusioned group of Conservative voters. And in every recent by-election, we've got two critical by-elections coming up in a couple of weeks, Tamworth and Mid-Bedfordshire. And I am prepared to bet that our lot, the Tory unfaithful, will once again be staying home. But we do have later today, don't we, Liam, we're recording now just before Rishi Sunak steps onto the stage in Manchester where you are and he's going to have to say a hell of a lot to convince the Tory unfaithful to come back into the fold. I think that's right. I think what's been happening here is a lot of the other senior cabinet ministers have been ordered by Downing Street to give quite thin speeches. Jeremy Hunt's speech was 20 minutes long, <laughs> which for a chancellor's speech at a party conference before an election is unbelievably truncated and curtailed. Do you know what I wrote about it? I said that Jeremy was such a poor puppet that he'd been ruled out by Jerry Anderson for being too wooden. <laughs> and I thought of my co-pilot with my Thunderbirds reference. <laughs> I know you're a Virgil man, or was it Scott? I never can quite remember Scott, your, Scott. your 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 puppet fantasies. My puppet fantasies. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. milady. 
At least they're not blow up puppets because that wouldn't be suitable for a family that show. That would not be suitable for a family <laughs> podcast. But how much of the buoyancy there are you detecting is actually from the kind of revitalised right who are now massing for a sort of bid on the party after the huge defeat? The buoyancy isn't coming from the main stage, the main auditorium, which has actually been quite empty at times, partly because of the train strike, but also because the action is elsewhere on the fringes. Of course, here in Manchester, you're going to have the party faithful, as I termed them, the envelope stuffers, the activists, the door knockers, you know, often people who have been Conservative Party members for many, many years, key figures in their local associations. And of course, when I talk to them, as I do, and many, many people have come up to me at this conference and said, great stuff with GB News, I love Planet Normal, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're going to come and tell me what they think they want me to hear, what I need to hear, so I'll convey that there is some buoyancy. But I do think there is some buoyancy, not least because Sunak in the last couple of weeks has started to show a bit more backbone, started to do some politics, shifting that ban on new petrol and diesel cars back from 2030 to 2035, just in line with the European Union average. It's hardly massively courageous. And yet it has energized people to feel he can take a tough decision. The fact that Jeremy Hunt was at least talking about tax cuts and Rishi Sunak's at least talking about tax cuts. The fact that the prime minister seems willing to start to annoy people rather than be a technocratic manager to actually be a politician. Having said that, you're right. The real energy has come from, unbelievably, the likes of Liz Truss, the likes of Priti Patel, who we'll hear from later in this episode, because they are marauding around the fringe, talking to people. I was very much involved with that Liz Truss meeting because I chaired it. Yes, you were. And the cops almost didn't let me in because obviously I was fashionably late as a journalist. I arrived one minute before I was meant to be there (laughs) thinking I was early and I couldn't almost get in because the room was so rammed and there were literally hundreds of people outside the room. And it's one of the biggest meeting rooms in the Midland Hotel, a very prominent hotel in central Manchester. That's traditionally one of the conference hotels. It's contained within a secure zone And it was absolutely rammed. There were literally the world's press sitting cross-legged in the aisles. You know, cops were having to be asked, fire regulations, fire regulations, let some more people in, let some poor people in. It felt to me, as I said to the activists and press there, some people will say this is a split. Some people will say this is a conservative gaffe because you had a former prime minister elected by activists, of course, criticising a prime minister, the current prime minister, who wasn't elected by activists because Rishi Sunak was crowned by MPs after the quick succession of Boris and then Liz Truss's Lady Jane Grey style 49 days. The room erupted when I pointed out that Liz Truss was elected by activists and Rishi Sunak wasn't. But you had a real fervour in the room. You had a real sense, not of a split or a gaffe, but of party democracy. It felt more like revolution than a Conservative Party meeting with four former cabinet ministers up there on the stage, one of them a former prime minister. It reminded me, Alison, as I surveyed the crowd, it reminded me of that scene in the Blues Brothers in the church, the evangelical church in the deep yeah, south, where yeah. they're literally backflipping down the aisle. <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of people there were relatively elderly. There weren't many backflips going on, but that was certainly the atmosphere. It was genuinely electric. But to pick up the sort of religious church thing, it's a schism, isn't it? This is, I can't yeah. even hardly say it with my teeth in. It's, given, <laughs> it's a schism. And that's Liz Truss, the one that was, you know, basically hurled out of the party ignominiously, attracting the most sort of rapturous audience. So this is very interesting now, Liam, because I don't think we're really talking about what's happening. I mean, what's their terrible slogan for the long-term strategies for a brighter future or something after 13 years of government? 13 years, 13 years of government. I think my favourite official comment on HS2 is that the consultants' reports were (laughs) over-optimistic. 
It's only a few billion you've squandered. Don't worry your pretty little heads about it. A few it. tens of billions. Tens of billions. Yeah. But setting aside that monumental waste, look, what, 13 years of them, what on earth have they achieved? And just coming back to you saying the party's a bit lifted because Rishi's shown he can make some tough decisions. Do you know what? Postponing, as we heard from that brilliant email we had last week from Chris, who is a senior government advisor on electric vehicles, the 2030 target was always delusional, to quote Chris. And even the 2035 target is looking implausible. So honestly, I am not in a mood to give a a round of applause (laughs) to people who are correcting things which should never have happened in the first place. You know, it's like, oh, great, we're not going to have trans people in women's wards or whatever. You think, yeah, how has that even been allowed to happen in the first place? Phones in classrooms, why were they ever allowed in the first place? So basically what they're trumpeting things that they're doing, which are actually just corrections back to what any commonsensical person thinks should have been the case in the first place. But coming back to your expert chairing of that trust meeting, which got a lot of coverage, including some of the co-pilot's witticisms, I've seen it. I was on Liam Halligan being funny. Who knew that? But you happened, didn't you, upon a really, really interesting and key, vital figure, in fact, in that meeting. I did. But before I come on to that, I have to say, co-pilot, you just then, you were born a generation too late because over the last minute, you have been Molly Sugden. You have been Mrs. Slocum <laughs> in Are You Being Served? With your pussy, of course. Now you got the Turkish five-digit cat, as we must call it. How much? <laughs> Here's the line. The Tories are rubbish. And I am unanimous in that, says Molly Slocum. And I'm standing there like Mr. Lucas in the sort of badly fitting brown suit with those sort of dodgy slip-on 70s shoes. You used to see in the opening title of the Sweeney on the accelerator pedal of the Mauve Cortina. The cost of the Turkish cat could actually finish the railway from Birmingham. <laughs> I tell you what, your cat is such a large line in the government's balance sheet. It's probably the reason that they've scrapped Birmingham Yes, exactly. Oh, we've got to laugh. We've got to laugh. As listeners can tell, I am I'm I'm done. I'm so furious with them. They do not deserve to be re-elected. They need a period of penitence in the wilderness where they beat their breasts with sticks and ask, why have we let down all our marvellous voters so badly? They have to daub berry juice on their <laughs> on their foreheads in the sign of a cross and howl at the moon. <laughs> you know what party conferences are like? You still haven't had much sleep, <laughs> Anyway, anyway, so what happened in this fringe meeting? It wasn't even a fringe meeting. It was a sort of packed, rammed hall. So the other people there were pretty Patel we're going to hear from, Jacob Rees-Mogg, of course, former business secretary, and a lesser-known former cabinet minister who will be prominent in the months and years to come, the MP for North East Hampshire, a very talented young man called Ranel Jaya Wardner, yes. former businessman, extremely articulate guy, attracting a lot of attention on the right of the party. And Ranel was, was and is kind of Liz Truss's lieutenant in the sense that she wants this pro-growth agenda. Remember, she did that massive essay in The Telegraph back in February where she outlined her views, said, you know, the economics establishment got rid of me. They didn't like the fact I wanted lower taxes, et cetera, et cetera. And since then, since that essay, on the back benches, Ranald Jai Wardner has been marshalling MPs, Tory backbench MPs, who believe in what Liz Truss is saying in terms of cutting taxes, cutting red tape, building more houses. They're the three kind of struts of her pro-growth policy. And this growth caucus, this conservative growth group on the back benches, sorry for the noise, I'm literally sitting in the media centre at party conference. You're sitting on a bin, aren't you? I'm sitting on a bin and the laptop and mic are literally (laughs) resting on my sweaty little lap. But this conservative growth group on the back bench of the House of Commons, I asked Ranald Jai Warden about it directly in front of this packed crowd, including loads of media, you know, literally dozens and dozens of cameras. And he confirmed to me that there are now upwards of 60 MPs in this conservative growth group, right? Now, why is that important? It's important because members of this conservative growth group, many of them are saying that if the government does an autumn statement or a spring budget, where the percentage of GDP, which is accounted for by tax, which of course has gone up in this parliament from 33% to 37%, the highest for many, many years, these MPs are saying, 
if tax is going up in any form whatsoever, then they will not vote for the government's bill that enacts either the measures in the autumn statement or the spring budget, i.e. a finance bill. And 60, the size of the Conservative growth group on the back benches, is the same as the government's working majority. Yeah, goodness. So that raises the question that these, I wouldn't call them trussite because they don't want Liz Truss to be leader, though she's certainly marshalling them and agitating them. These pro-growth MPs on the Tory right, these MPs who want lower taxes, less red tape, immediate cut in corporation tax from 25 back down to 19. They have it in their power, in theory at least, to prevent the government getting a money bill through the House of Commons, from getting its business through the House of Commons. Mm. And if a ruling government cannot get a money bill through the House of Commons, that's where the phrase confidence and supply comes from, supply being the supply of products and goods and so on, and money, then that is a no-confidence issue, right? These guys on the right of the Tory party, they have it. They are now organised enough and galvanised enough. When it comes to the question of tax, if they don't see tax cuts, they're going to get angry. And if they see tax rises, I wouldn't say they would bring down the government, but the threat is there. And this will be enormously focusing Rishi Sunak's mind and Jeremy Hunt's mind. Now, I don't actually think there's that much philosophical difference. I really don't between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss on this. For me, it's a question of timing for two reasons. The first reason is that literally as we are speaking, the world's bond markets, government debt markets, are demonstrating that there's a lot of concern out there about the scale of government borrowing. Mm. Here in this country, government borrowing is such that the combination of more borrowing and a rise in interest rates means that we are now paying each year, predicted for 2023, we are now paying, wait for it, £110 billion in debt interest, right? In a single year. That's second only to the NHS, on the government's balance sheet. And that's dead money. That's to service debt. So I think to announce tax cuts now, you could genuinely spook the market. But also, Sunak and Hunt, they will want to put the clear blue water between themselves and Labour, to announce the tax cuts, to pull the rabbit out of the hat as near to the general election as they can. And that means not now, it means the spring. I actually, in my assiduous Halligan student way, had written down the <laughs> 110 billion interest repayments. My God, how yeah. on earth has it come to that? It's absolutely That's huge. That's such a break on the country's ability to function, isn't it? I mean, in terms of our ability to spend on things. Rishi is about to announce that the cancellation of this final leg of HS2 we think he's going to spin it as we'll have loads of money to do the thing we should have been doing in the first place, which is linking up the northern towns and cities. Do you think that's right? I think that's right. Of course, there are already halfway decent rail lines between the Trans-Pennine route, which I've happily travelled on many, many times, but it's slow and it's bitty and it's old and it's a bit creaky and it's infrequent and there are lots of diesel trains, which you can't have many carriages because they're not powerful enough and they can't accelerate, so they're infrequent, so they're crowded, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You could really upgrade that Trans-Pennine route and you can add other bits to properly link together Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, Bradford, hopefully, Hull, Middlesbrough, Newcastle. If you do that, these cities have enormous international name recognition. They have real talent in their workforces. They have houses that are relatively cheap where people could move to. These cities, while post-industrial cities, many of them, they're often in beautiful parts of the country. They offer tremendous lifestyle opportunities. You would have a lot more people moving to the north of England. The north of England would become, in total, linking up these cities, a major growth centre that could challenge London. And that's what we desperately need to do because we are the most regionally lopsided yeah. major economy in the world. It's mad. London's like a huge Death Star. And I speak as a Londoner, a proud Londoner, just pulling all the energy from everything out of the regions into London. I don't see how are they going to spin. They're going to try and spin this massive humiliation and failure, aren't they? As oh, you know, it's like Rishi taking a brave decision to stop it. It's already HS2, which, as we heard from our brilliant guest Johnson Tyler last week, has already. You know, people were warning about this for 
well, a decade, weren't they? Yeah, they've, yeah. Been, they've been warning it. So they actually, to take credit now for stopping something which probably should never have started in, in, in the form as it was envisaged, is terrible. But moving on now, I'm, I'm interested to see, I wrote a bit about this today, that the three front runners, I guess, now for the, we, we're actually are now talking about a post-Rishi Sunak world, if, if his devastating defeat, as I keep telling you, in Mrs. Slocum fashion, is coming down the line. At the speed of what HS2 would have been going at had it not been had to be cancelled. But we're looking at Kemi Badenoch now, uh, as of today, the bookie's favourite to be the next leader of the Conservative Party. You know her well. Suella, who gave a barnstorming Home Secretary speech yesterday. She's running out of scary nouns and adjectives for the flood of migrants, the hurricane of migrants, the tsunami of migrants. And she got a standing ovation before she started speaking, which will, I don't think Rishi Sunak will be getting a standing ovation uh, unless they've got go in there with the cattle prods and Priti Patel of course who we're coming to soon so very interesting to me Liam three strong women absolute conservatives to the bone all women of immigrant backgrounds that doesn't matter to any of them I know it doesn't and they wouldn't wish to be presented in those terms but it does interest me really that we have these women from non-conventional conservative backgrounds who are emerging as the truest warrior conservatives of them all. Yeah, I think Swella Braverman's speech did go down well here among party activists. I think the language that she used, the use of the term hurricane, Mm. some moderate voters, even some moderate conservatives, will view that language as, well, how can I say, sort of powlite, evocative of that infamous rivers of blood speech, which the former conservative and Ulster unionist Enoch Powell gave in 1969. I I do think the language was very strong. The conservative faithful here lapped it up, of course, but I do think it will have raised eyebrows elsewhere. I know you're saying it's raised eyebrows, Liam, but Alt Mehmet, our friend at Migration Watch, has told me that on November the 23rd, they're going to be announcing the net legal immigration figures. And he thinks that will be well over a million for the last two years. Now, that is a city the size of Birmingham arriving in the United Kingdom, a country where the public services are in such a terrible state that they can't even cater for the people who are here, including well over 7 million people on the hospital waiting list. Actually, Liam, a listener pointed out, I wrote that a tenth of the British population was on an NHS waiting list. And this person pointed out that it wasn't just a tenth of the population. The fact is most people on the waiting list won't be children or teenagers or even people in their 20s. So we are talking about a huge percentage of the over 50s or even over 45s on that waiting list. Quite incredible. What if it's 20% of the middle-aged and older population on a health service waiting list? I mean, it is absolutely scandalous and we cannot continue to allow more people into the country until there has been a, a reform of the NHS, which, as we've said often on Planet Normal, if it's going to come at all, will probably come from West Streeting and Labour. Hi, Tony Diver here, The Telegraph's US editor in Washington, D.C. I've launched a new free-to-read newsletter from the US editor, featuring insight from our correspondents around the world and thought-provoking opinion from leading journalists in both Britain and the USA. The newsletter is packed with the best of the Telegraph's global coverage. Visit telegraph.co.uk forward slash from the US editor to sign up. Now, today's Planet Normal guest is the former Home Secretary and former Secretary of State for International Development, Priti Patel. Born in London to a proud Ugandan-Indian family, Dame Priti joined the Conservatives at a young age, but in the late 1990s, she was Press Secretary to Jimmy Goldsmith's referendum party. Entering the House of Commons as MP for Whittam in 2010, she's long been a prominent Eurosceptic, playing a leading role in the Brexit campaign. Staunchly pro-business, Dame Pretty's well known for her on-the-ground campaigning and her close links with the party's grassroots. Alison and I caught up with her on the fringes of the Tories' Manchester Party Conference. Pretty Patel, thanks a lot for joining us on Planet Normal. I'm thrilled to be joining you both. I really am. Thank you. Pretty, 
On Sunday here at Conservative Party Conference, it's fair to say that Liz Truss made a bit of a splash and you were there with her. What happened? So, you know, this conference actually feels very energised, dynamic. People like me have always been at the forefront of, you know, being with the grassroots, battle of ideas. And that's effectively what happened, Liam. So you saw we held something called a growth rally. And it was good old-fashioned debate, you know, party political debate about what we Conservatives in the Conservative Party do need to do to actually get Britain growing again. But with this, and this is incredibly important, in a year's time, we could be in a general election. So we want to be able to influence the manifesto so we can have literally a full-blooded Conservative manifesto that is based on our values, beliefs, our principles, sound money, free markets, capitalism, the freedom to succeed, all the positive issues around the economy that effectively help the country, will help the country to thrive and grow. Pretty, I wanted to ask you about democracy in the party. A lot of Planet Normal listeners and Telegraph readers are pretty fed up that the Conservative Party members elected Boris Johnson as leader. He was ejected by MPs and they voted for Liz Truss, who was also booted out by MPs and replaced by Rishi Sunak, who has no wider mandate. Do you see a need to involve Tory members going forward more in the process and in determining policies? So, Alison, the answer is absolutely. And I've been a long-standing proponent of this. I mean, I even got myself elected to the Conservative Party board in 2010, because I do believe we need much more democracy at the grassroots. And as you know, my background is I'm a grassroots activist first and foremost. I still say that rather than just sort of introducing myself as a politician, because I started out at the grassroots. I never actually wanted to be an MP. I was always involved in the party in some shape or form. But the voice of the grassroots is incredibly important. And Alison, you've just hit the nail on the head. You know, we've had two democratically elected leaders of our party that basically were then removed in a terrible way, quite frankly, through lots of gamesmanship, shenanigans led by Westminster MPs. And of course, there should always be a golden thread from the grassroots upwards to the MPs. And I think that has certainly broken over not just recent years, but certainly over some time. Back in the day, my MP when I joined the Conservative Party was Cecil Parkinson, who was a great MP. But I do remember, and I've worked for former party chairman, I worked for Cecil actually, when he became party chairman under William Hague. And, you know, those were the days that if your association chairman phoned up the Member of Parliament, you'd think, crikey, something serious was going down. You know, they're here to really have a go at me about something. I've said the wrong thing in Westminster or I didn't vote with the government on a particular issue. Now that golden thread just doesn't exist between the grassroots and the MP and the activities in Westminster. And we have to reclaim that. We really do. The level of disillusionment, I think, across the grassroots is really being felt. The Conservative Democratic Organisation is really important in the sense that, yes, we want to promote change. We must have more democracy, a say over who our parliamentary candidates are, i.e. the people that become our future MPs, accountability in decision-making, even an influence in policy areas for the manifesto. But ultimately, what we saw last year should never happen again. And what we're seeing with CDO, we're seeing a lot of people that would otherwise leave the Conservative Party actually register their support with CDO. And we need to keep them because these are the people that deliver our leaflets, they're grassroots activists. You know, they're the heart and soul of the party. Because we are at Tory conferences, you say probably the last major annual conference before the next general election, as well as your rather mischievous meeting with Liz and indeed Jacob Rees-Ramog and Ranul Jaiwardner, former cabinet ministers, all of you on Monday. On Sunday night, I saw you at the CDO dinner, the Conservative Democratic Organisation dinner. The CDO is only one year old. I must say, I felt at that dinner, if the atmosphere at the Liz Trust meeting that you were part of was mischievous. The atmosphere at the CDO dinner on Sunday night was, and I say this mindful that the room was full of conservatives, the atmosphere was revolutionary, pretty. There was a lot of celebration and joy and hope in the room, but there was a lot of anger. 
There is a lot of anger. There really is. I'm energised about conservatism. I always have been. You know, I have a great amount of passion and belief in my party. I've been around for a long time in the Conservative Party. So I have a degree of a responsibility with CDO to bring some hope, really, to our members. But they want change. You know, we cannot ignore that. They want change. They are absolutely gutted with what happened last year. I've actually been speaking at a CDO event today, and I gave a speech I take the view now, I mean, things are so serious, the challenges we face in our country, the prospect of Keir Starmer coming into number 10. You know, I don't want that. I want a conservative victory. And I'm saying to all our members, we've got to stick together. Let's try and influence the right kind of outcomes post-party conference, whether it's on the economy, the manifesto, democracy in our party. And I I am actually going to try and see the party chairman post-conference now to have Mm. some of these important conversations. We can't do it in isolation. We've got to work as a team and we have to work together. But I want change. And on behalf of our wonderful members, we have to deliver some change for them. Otherwise, politics will just become centralised and too remote. And I think we've seen that in the past with other political parties like Labour, effectively what happens when centralisation grips political parties. You know, you lose your base, you get even more factionalism, and that is not good for our politics. You were Home Secretary from 2019 to 2021. We know you tried to take a pretty tough line on immigration, which was popular not just with conservatives, but in the wider country. Now, on November the 23rd, we are expecting an announcement that the net immigration total for the past two years is over 1 million people. And I spoke to Alp Mehmet at Migration Watch today and Alp says that that was an underestimate. So how are Conservative voters supposed to feel that the government they voted for, whose manifesto said it would control or bring down the numbers of in immigration, has actually overseen a city the size of Birmingham coming in in the last two years? So, Alison, I do think, I say this frequently, we do have to differentiate between legal migration. These are people, legal migration and illegal migration. We have to, over the last few years, I'd say three years, post-2019, we do have to look at the fact that we have changed our system. We do have a points-based immigration system, which effectively does enable the government to control who comes into the country and who leaves the country through the visa routes that have been set up. These are legal and legitimate visa routes. It's important to emphasise that. People aren't breaking laws by coming into the country. A lot of them are sponsored. They pay a lot of money for their visas. And on top of that, the immigration health surcharge, things of that nature, and their net contributes to our country. When I left last year, in fact, I was discussing this with some people in the Home Office recently. We started a lot of work to look at the what I call the automatic levers that the government of the day, the Home Secretary of the day has around how you can effectively dial all that back. So it means making choices, Alison, some hard choices. So 2019, we were very clear, we brought in easier routes to the for health people to come into the NHS, health and care visa routes. I remember speaking about that in the 2019 general election. We brought in tech visas, the request, by the way, of the Chancellor at the time, all sorts of routes to basically help our economy and bring foreign direct investment in. On top of this, We've had some pretty big catastrophes that we've had to deal with, Ukraine being one. Afghanistan was just horrendous, the whole operation pitting and removing people from Afghanistan and bringing them here. And then, of course, BNOs. I was involved in the BNO scheme, you know, British nationals overseas who actually were in Manchester. So many of them have come to Manchester. But there are some choices. I'm not sure what the government is doing. I'm, You know, we pick up bits in the newspapers that they might look at the student route because our student numbers are very high. India now has overtaken China in terms of people coming from India to study in our universities. It was China before. So the Home Secretary could look at that. There's a lot of chatter about dependence. I'm not sure how that will work, particularly for a doctor or a consultant or a you know neurosurgeon coming over here. They're going to come with their family members. They're not going to come on their own. But the government does have these levers of control. And I actually think this is quite important that the government actually speaks about the powers that they do have to reduce migration. Sorry, can I just say, we were told that we were following the Australian points-based system, which has a much higher requirement for salaries and qualifications than ours. Ours is a very diluted requirement, which means that a lot of people are coming in who are 
on or, or below the average British wage, which is not at all what the Australian points-based system is, which encourages people with, you know, kind of quite se- se- serious qualifications that are really needed by the economy. Alison, I understand what you're saying, but that is not quite accurate for the people that have been coming over to the country. I know your point about the salary thresholds and the government is, through the um, MAC, the Migration Advisory Committee, increasing the salary thresholds, and that's the right thing to do. But through the points-based system, people have to be sponsored by their employers to come to the country. They then have to pay thousands of pounds for their visas and also the various health charges and surcharges on top of that. These tend to be high-rate taxpayers. They're not people on low incomes and low salaries that come. Your point about the salary threshold for certain skill shortages, occupational shortages, and there is a list of people where there is an occupational shortage list, that's where you are making the reference to, and there are changes that are being made there. And a lot of this, I think this is quite important just to reflect upon this, Liam, your thoughts would be welcome on this as well, is I have been pursuing or trying to push government when I was in government for a better labour market strategy. Mm. We simply do not have a labour market plan and strategy for our country. And I, you know, I've got background as a labour market economist as well. When you look at labour market figures on a monthly basis, and where you see where the inflation is across particular sectors, and wage inflation in particular, you can see where the constraints are and where more people are coming in from overseas to fill those places. An awful lot of that is skill shortage in basic but vital and extremely dignified professions. Just as a comment, why you know, let's build more social housing. The Tories can fire up the red wall, other lower income areas, build more social housing, use that as a seedbed for apprentices, for trades and so on. That has been a big theme of this conference. Migration, uh, as Alison said, has been a big theme of this conference. But the big daddy theme of this conference has been tax. Taxation is now at a 70-year high as a share of GDP. It was very much the thrust, again, of that meeting on Monday where, where you joined Liz Truss and Jacob and Ronald Jai Wardner. I thought the most interesting part of that aside from the fact that it was just an hour before the Chancellor's speech and there were hundreds of people queuing outside who couldn't get in. It was literally standing room only. I see you. I, well, I did get the biggest cheer, according to Guido Fawkes, was an aside from Rannell. Rannell is, of course, the leader of the Conservative growth group on the backbenches, backbench MPs who want more growth, who are broadly supportive of what Liz was trying to do, even if they understand that there were a lot of difficulties in, in, in how she did it and the delivery and so on. He disclosed in front of a room full of the world's press that the Conservative growth group, I said it has about 50 people, and he said, no, actually it's about 60. And a little light went on in my head. Crikey, 60 is the size of the government's working majority. And the Conservative growth group, you're basically all saying, if taxes go up at the autumn statement, if taxes go up, at the budget as a share of GDP, you guys aren't going to vote for it. You could literally stop the government stone dead because if the government can't get its finance bills, its money bills through parliament, it can't govern. That's a no confidence issue. So I don't think it will get that far. I'll be very, very candid. I don't see it as a threat. I actually see it from a slightly different perspective in the sense that what I think is really quite heartening about this conference, particularly from the backbench perspective, is that we're all saying the same thing. We are standing up for who we are as Conservatives. And on the economy, that is the greatest differentiator between us and the Labour Party. We know what that means, you know, with the Labour Party. That is absolutely crystal clear. But if we can unify on this, then we can actually bring about the change that we need to see at a macro level in Westminster, influence the debates when it comes to autumn statement. So we have to be in that space. And also we have to articulate to the country a vision that basically says 70-year high in taxation that is unacceptable but we can explain why we're in this situation Ukraine and all the rest of it size of the state has grown too much as well but we have to have the solutions we've got to have the propositions to go forward which that fantastic discussion that we had at the rally yesterday coming back to the labour market but supply side reforms building more houses we cannot build more houses until we have people with more skills in our country and as a former employment minister I remember the time when the apprenticeship levy came in and you know it still doesn't work properly there are no incentives. It's got all the wrong incentives. We should actually be incentivizing employers, the colleges to actually do more in this space. We do have the solutions, but we are actually going to have to peel back the layers of the state to make all this happen and make it work. 
You were accused of bullying when you were Home Secretary by a senior civil servant, claims that you, of course, strenuously denied. Now, we've seen several ministers, Dominic Raab being the latest example, facing allegations of bullying from their civil servants, which to some observers look like a boss demanding that certain policies are put into effect pronto. Pretty, do you think it's difficult for a minister to get what increasingly appears to be a woke, left-leaning civil service to carry out manifesto pledges? And would you favour moving to a more American system where the incoming administration brings its own officials? So we've seen some shocking things, quite frankly, over recent years. I think it's got a lot worse, Alison, from everything yeah. that I've been reading. Also in The Telegraph, you have some very good reporters that are doing some inside reporting from Whitehall, exposing, as you said, the woke culture, but actually deliberate intent not to deliver on an elected government's priorities. That is a massive problem. I should just say for a little bit of context, during my troubles in the department, you know, fresh off an election campaign in 2019, where we won and secured an 80-seat majority, Boris and the people's priorities, and I, I never tire of calling our manifesto, naming it the people's priorities, I could see that it did upset, you know, a lot of our civil servants at the time across Whitehall because they did not like Brexit. I think, quite frankly, they didn't particularly like politicians like myself and Boris as well. For a range of reasons, we're big campaigners. We are in tune with the public in many ways. We were bringing in change and it was difficult. It was really difficult. It is a lot worse now. I'm hearing that from a lot of colleagues. What I don't like, and I've also got a private sector background, is that, you know, we are within our rights to ask for better performance. We're critical thinkers as well, so challenging others in the right space in terms of, you know, how we question them, how they've reached certain conclusions and submissions that they put forward to us. It's all legitimate. That is absolutely legitimate. But, you know, when we're treated in a way in which that you've overstepped, we didn't like your tone, that is absolutely unacceptable. You know, we're all working long hours and officials are as well. We're committed. You know, I certainly throughout my time in government and all the roles that I've had, I've been committed to doing my job. I believe in public service. I do this because I want to serve my country. When you have people that really, you know, their heart's not in it, they clearly don't like what they're being asked to deliver. That's a problem. And it does mean, Alison, I think we do have to bring in changes to the civil service. You probably saw yesterday, I think Jeremy Hunt said that he wanted to try and reform the civil service, shake it up, remove 64,000 civil servants. That's a hell of a lot, isn't it? But we should have more power because as ministers, we don't have the power to hire and fire I've got my own views on that. I think we will have to move to a system where, you know, you have the hearings and you can make political appointments and things of that nature because we need to be supported. Ministers have to be supported in delivering the job that they're there to do. Priti Patel, hand on heart. Can the Tories win the next election? I absolutely believe we can. I remember the 2015 election, actually, post the coalition. You know, some of us were quite grumpy about the coalition years and all that kind of stuff. And it rejuvenated you know, re us to literally go back out there and say, we want a conservative majority. We were hell for leather. I think we have to be like that again. I really do. An 80-seat majority is a big majority in 2019. We know that we have to work hard to fight for every vote. There are a lot of people that probably look at us all now and feel a little bit disillusioned you know, had Boris, had Liz, we are where we are right now. You said this, you said that, a lot of stuff has gone, water under the bridge. We have to win them back and we have to win their trust and confidence back. And that's not easy. That is hard work. We're going to have to roll our sleeves up and get shoulder to the wheel and just get behind Rishi and really focus on winning. Pretty Patel, if, no, let's say when you are the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, can co-pilot Halligan be your chance for the Exchequer? <laughs> That'll be an interesting discussion, won't it, Alison? <laughs> are you offering to facilitate the negotiations? She's going to charge commission. <laughs> I thought she would. I really loved that, Liam. She was on good form, wasn't she? I think you could get on great, and I was doing it at a distance, but you were there with her in the room. She seems massively chipper, doesn't she? Obviously, most of our interviews, we do them separately, don't we? But it's good, I think, when we do a double header. Yes. It makes it a lot more conversational. And I wouldn't say she's emerged as a leadership candidate here, but she certainly very much put herself back on the map. As you heard there, on the Sunday night of Conservative Party Conference, there was a dinner the Conservative Democratic Organization. And if the atmosphere at the Liz Trust meeting was like a kind of evangelical church 
there was even more fervor in that CDO dinner. And actually, anger, anger, as Conservative Party activists see it, at candidates imposed on party associations by Downing Street and Conservative Central Office. Anger, in particular, that Liz Truss, who the activists voted for, was bundled out the door and a prime minister was brought in at the whim, not of party activists, but of MPs. Yes, it was interesting, A, to hear Pretty getting a huge cheer for speaking in favour of GB News, which has been having multiple, I think, rather disgraceful calls for it to be shut down. We're not going to discuss the specifics. So she got a huge cheer for that. And I was very interested to see uh, Lord Crudders, who is obviously a major figure behind the scenes in the Conservative Democratic Organisation, actually telling Conservatives not to give money to the party, because you're just basically propping up vested interests which control the party and don't listen to the members. And I have to say that that chimes very strongly with what I hear from the Telegraph readers emailing me. Huge annoyance that the policies they want, the policies they voted for, are not enacted. And something I said in the column yesterday, Liam, was that people say, oh, Alison, do you really want a Labour government? We'll be in opposition. And I say, we're in opposition already. We're in opposition to the government we elected. And I think that that's where we are now. Very interesting to hear Pretty Patel also on what we all have heard of difficulties of being a minister with a civil service, which is increasingly apparently left-leaning and very woke. I think that's interesting, Alison. There are two groups of people here at this party conference. There are most of the activists who, as I say, are the envelope stuffers, the campaigners, the parties, troops on the ground campaigning. I think many of them feel they can still win. But I would say most of the MPs here, and even some of the ministers I've spoken to, serving ministers, they're basically preparing for a post-Sunak world on the assumption that they're going to lose the next general election. Now, even that's interesting because, of course, in the 80s, Neil Kinnock lost a general election as Labour Party leader, but then stayed on to almost win an election in 1992. Remember that famous Sheffield rally when he thought he'd actually won, but then he didn't win at the last moment. John Major snatched it from him with a majority of 24 or 25 or so. So there's an assumption among many professional politicians here that not only are the Tories going to lose, but then that's going to be it for Rishi Sunak. He will be removed, the revolver in the library with a tumbler of whiskey for our teetotal prime minister. What's he going to have a tumbler of chai, one of those nice little beakers? <laughs> it is so interesting, though, that the three people that are emerging, and, and really it's two with Pretty as an adjunct with all respect to her, Kemi Badnock of West African origin. She was born in England, but she spent a lot of her childhood in Nigeria before she came to the UK and trained as an engineer and so on. And then you've got Swella Braveman, whose parents hail from Mauritius, but also from Kenya, East Africa. It's quite incredible that we could end up with either of those two as leader of the Conservative Party. And I'm sure, just as when Sunak became Prime Minister, there was very little comment about the fact that this guy is clearly of proud Asian origin. The chat was... Oh, he's clever. He's very wealthy. You know, he's from this faction of the party. He's MP for Richmond in North Yorkshire. But it really is quite incredible. And in some ways, it makes me proud of the UK that we have this genuine, based on merit, diversity at the top of our politics. And particularly with the Conservative Party, it's something that I know makes Labour people very, very uncomfortable that it's tended to be the Tories who have produced female prime ministers, female leaders, allowing people of ethnic origins to advance under their own merits to the very apex of power. I wouldn't be too quick to rule Pretty Patel out as leader. Yeah. I think that she's obviously got a lot of support from that sort of crudest thing. She's been uh, boogieing away with Nigel Farage at the fringe, hasn't she? And I don't know. I think how she presents herself as having been a sort of grassroots activist, I think she may well have a great appeal with the members. And I think if they reform the voting of the members, then I wouldn't rule her out at all. It's interesting that you mentioned Nigel because, of course, he is here 
under the auspices of GB News as a GB News presenter. But as far as the activists are concerned, or some of the activists, he is here, as he well knows, as some kind of prince across the water. This is his first Conservative Party conference since the late 1980s. It was touch and go about whether or not he was going to be granted a pass. My GB News colleague, Chris Hope, formerly of The Telegraph, of course, he's now GB News political editor. He's made a fantastic transition from print to broadcasting. In many Planet Normal listeners will have been huge fans of his excellent Chopper's Politics podcast. He's been having a fantastic conference. You know, the BBC, Sky, they've been using clips of Chris's interview with Rishi Sunak because Chris started by asking Rishi Sunak, not about HS2 or, you know, Liz Truss. Chris used a really, really interesting question when he asked the Prime Minister, would you welcome Nigel Farage back into your party? Off the bat. And Sunak, his mouth went to say no. (laughs) (laughs) But the words that came out of his mouth were actually, well, we're a broad church in the Conservative Party. We always welcome new members, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then Chris got a second scoop by then interviewing Nigel and saying, why would I join a party that's raised tax to the highest level for 70 years? What is Farage's game? Come on, something's going on. He's got these links with the Reform Party, which Richard Tice is leading. He's the chairman of the Reform Party. He's the chairman of the Reform Party. Okay, so what's the game? Something's afoot, isn't it? They're planning something. I mean, what do you think? Post a defeat, what do you think they'd do? Well, I think Nigel Farage's mission in life is to wind up the Conservative Party. And he's done that very, very effectively for many years, nudging the Conservative Party, cajoling the Conservative Party into action. It was because his then UKIP party came second in over 150 seats in the 2015 referendum. It was because his UKIP party won the European election in 2011 that David Cameron was forced to pledge and then go through with, of course, a referendum on membership of the European Union. And I think what Nigel is playing at, he can speak for himself, but as a sort of political analyst and somebody who obviously sees him around at GB News, I think he's just here nudging the Conservative Party back to what he sees as traditional conservatism. Low tax, low red tape, home ownership, control of borders, and so on. But to see him move around party conference, moving through the conference centre, he was basically mobbed everywhere he went by people looking for selfies, not just older people, lots of younger people too. And I heard it said a lot more than once that no one has caused a stir at a party conference like he did since Boris Johnson. Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. We absolutely love them. Just please do keep them coming. We've had some fantastic ones recently. And here, talking of fantastic ones, you're going to like this one, Halligan. It's from Ralph. Everybody's having a pop at the Tories, but they've done so much good. Crime is under control. Taxes are low. Half a trillion well spent on locking the country down. No billions wasted on PPE. HS2 is a roaring success. Immigration at 600,000 is a credit to their tough stance. Wokery and penises are no longer stifling the country. Schools and universities are beacons of enlightenment and free speech. And the media is superbly balanced. The only downside is the opening of an oil field in the North Sea. But I'm sure they'll sort that soon. Oh, Ralph. <laughs> Tongue firmly in cheek. <laughs> you tease. <laughs> some, some fantastic British sarcasm there. This is from the wonderfully named Wendy. Dear, dear Alison Liam, I'm a Wendy of long standing. Of course, last week we revealed that Wendy Craig wasn't actually Wendy. She was a Gwendolyn. I'm a Wendy of long standing, says this week's Wendy, who is a devoted listener to Planet Normal. I've always liked my name, despite its supposed lack of class. I've been reflecting on a girl called Karen, a year younger than me at my state-funded primary school. She followed me to the local state-funded grammar school. This particular Karen is now Dame Karen Pierce, Lady Roxburgh no less, who was the permanent representative of the UK to the United Nations and is currently our British ambassador to the US. Others can denigrate the Karens of this world at their peril, but Planet Normal can be relied on 
to give stalwart support to the many ordinary people who provide the solid backbone of this country. Best wishes, Wendy. P.S. Personally, I am beyond redemption. Having attended the GB News event at Lee with Alison, etc., and not forgetting Liz Truss, as you referred to in your column, Alison, it was a successful and genial event. It was not full of far-right extremists, but, quote, ordinary people who feel disconnected with the political elite in London. And from Wendy to Karen, another Karen. Yay! Crikey, they're everywhere. There's an army of Karens. Dear Alison Liam, I just wanted to say thank you for sticking up for Karens this last week, as it really struck a chord with me. As an antidote to the prevailing negative view, I've been trying to do my bit to represent the better side of Karens. Like you, I went to school with several, and have also worked with many Karens over the years, and I don't recall any of them being unpleasant. I hope it's not me. <laughs> I've tried not to take the current Karen bashing trend too seriously, but it does get harder to laugh off. When there's now a board game in the supermarket and even themed Karen restaurants cashing in. I was very grateful to happen upon your brilliant podcast during the pandemic when I couldn't understand what was going on and what was happening to common sense. I think I googled something desperate like, why doesn't anything make sense anymore? It's been hugely reassuring to know that there really are so many other ordinary and extraordinary people out there asking the same thing. And I've been an avid listener ever since. Honestly, you really did and do keep me sane. So a big thank you, says Karen to all at Planet Normal for all that you do. Keep up the great work with all my best wishes. And best wishes to you too, the wonderfully named Karen. We are on the side of Karens on Planet Normal. This is from Mike, not his real name. Dear Alison and Liam, I write as a devoted listener to the Rocket of Right Thinking and as a businessman of some 20 plus years in the hospitality sector, I've just managed to calm myself enough that I don't simply smash my keyboard through the computer monitor following our esteemed Chancellor's announcement that the national living wage will rise to £11 plus per hour next April. It's difficult to know where to begin with my apoplexy, should it be the injustice of a being almost destroyed by completely unnecessary COVID restrictions and forced into taking on completely unwanted huge levels of debt simply so my company should survive. Or perhaps it should be the complete mismanagement of the economy leading to spiralling inflation, subsequent precipitous interest rate rises. Perhaps, though, I should let bygones be bygones. But it is so very difficult when our Conservative government seems hell-bent on shoveling more coal on the economic fire. This weekend, I attended a birthday party where many of the guests are business owners. They were very easy to spot. They were the ones who looked gaunt and stressed. There were colleagues from hospitality, the construction industry and retail, amongst others. When entering into conversation after a couple of drinks, every single one intimated that they feared for their commercial futures. Wage rises, back again today, thanks Jeremy, energy costs, travel disruption, interest rates, COVID debt burden, all factored heavily in the cloud of dismay which hovered over the room. All agreed they have never known times as bleak. Now the Chancellor gives us notice of yet another rise in the national living wage, which we're told is to encourage those who can work back into work. Surely the system should do that by simply declining to facilitate them sitting on their backsides. I wonder, does the Chancellor realise that the only way the projected rise in NLW can be met by businesses is to increase prices? For my business alone, we will need turnover circa £250,000 more per annum to meet that bill. In an economy that skirts a recession in technical terms, but feels like one to the population experiencing it, there is no additional disposable income to attract, helped by static income tax thresholds. What's the betting that this time next year we're talking about inflation, then interest rates? In fact, the only ones who seemed their normal selves at the party were the poor, impoverished GPs and consultants present. All flippancy aside, planet normal, people are at their wits' end. All of them there talked of wishing they could get out. These are people I've known for years who've always been resilient, dynamic, inventive. I know some, myself included, very much feeling the mental strain of trying to keep the wolf from the door. In 2022, my business was finally taking a fiscal breath. And for the first time since 2020, we were showing a good level of profitability. This year, we are now running on our cash reserves and have possibly two months left. With two children and a sizable mortgage to feed, 
you find yourself considering every option available to you. And I mean every option. I feel incredibly guilty about what I fear is the inevitable outcome that my business and many, many others will fail. I will have failed my family and the CBIL COVID survival debt we took out will fall upon the great British public to pay. Looking in the eyes of all the party guests, I know they were feeling the same. Oh, my. That is the front line of business for many, many people in this country at the moment. Do you know what? That's our government. And when Rishi Sunak stands up in however many minutes, what about all the mics, you know, desperately trying to keep his business going, keeping all his staff paid, having to find a quarter of a million pounds to meet the rise in the national living wage? And so that is it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week. It's your turn, Alison. Well, I think it's got to go to Mike, not his real name. Mike, we're with you. We're battling alongside you. You're the backbone of our country. Absolutely brilliant. Please send us your full name and address. And a magnificent Planet Normal mug will be winging its way to you. And put in the subject heading of that email, Mike, not your real name, the words mug winner. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever. To our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, Cass Ho, and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs>